0: Maybe it should have hit me during the prayer, but it hit me on Tuesday of this past week that I am suffering from some type of disorder. And I think I think some of you are suffering from it too. And you maybe caught it a little earlier than I did. I know that Lisa caught it, I think, maybe like two months ago. And I've come up with a name for it. See if you think maybe this is something that you're fighting with. It's called election fatigue syndrome. Now, as soon as I came to the realization, I began to wonder, election fatigue syndrome, does that really exist? So I did maybe what you would have done. I hopped on the Internet and did some research. And first I typed in the word election. And some of these things, sometimes when you go to search for something, I'm not sure about you, but it kind of irritates me sometimes because it wants to finish my thought for me. Do you ever get that? So I type in the word election, and there are just countless kind of hits. But then I thought, okay, I'm slowly going to type in the word fatigue. So I typed in an F, and then an A, and then a T. And when I typed in the T, I saw election fatigue as an option. But right below it was election fatigue syndrome. It exists. There is an analytical social psychologist who has coined the term election fatigue syndrome, and you know it's real, you know it's, I mean, you know that you could have it, because he says it really should go by its initials, EFS. So understand, if you're experiencing some kind of malaise, some kind of problem, maybe you need to miss a few days of work or school, I'm sure they're good with it, just write on the note, EFS, and you're home free. Now, while election fatigue syndrome had just a couple hits when I went onto to the internet, I thought, what if I take off syndrome? What if I just type in election fatigue? Because I saw that was an option. So I went and clicked on that. And get this, election fatigue, there were over 7 million hits. Folks, this is an epidemic. I mean, we need Jerry Lewis do a telethon. I mean, this thing is serious, right? So I went, I looked at a few, and the best one I found, it offered the symptoms, and it even offered a cure. See if you can relate to some of these symptoms. The symptoms include this one, chronic narcolepsy during political television ads, which means you fall asleep during every ad on TV because every ad's an election ad, right? Aversion to campaign street signs on street corners, mood swings another reason why you may have a mood swing. How about this manic postings on Facebook? That's election fatigue syndrome. I've seen a few of those. Or this, maybe some of you have actually done this. Debating with strangers in line at Starbucks. If you've done that, if you've finished a sentence by saying my name and I approve of this message, then listen, you have election fatigue syndrome. But there's hope. This this site offered a cure. For relief from the rhetoric, this site said, go to the AAA Five-diamond exclusive resort, the Fairmont Scottsdale Princess. It looks beautiful. I'd like to go there myself. And they're offering an election fatigue package. They call it a bipartisan getaway plan. I love it. It says they offer overnight accommodations. They even give you, get this, a $50 daily stimulus credit for use at the food and beverage places. They say you can have access to the Willow Stream Spa, whatever that is, and on and on. And then I really like this. It said, to avoid poll addiction, guests may elect not to receive the daily newspaper or TV news channels in their room. There is hope if you suffer from this. The price, though, the price for a cure, it's out of my range. Maybe you can handle it. But the election fatigue package starts at $399 per night. That's based on availability. Hurry now through November 10th. And once again, I just want to say, it's the Fairmont Scottsdale Princess. So if any of you work for the Fairmont Hotels or if you're listening online, we're plugging it. I would love a free stay to to get over election fatigue syndrome. Now, it's kind of silly stuff, but we too have had our own kind of take on the election the past few weeks. We've been in this series that we've entitled In God We Trust... And if you've been here, you know that we've taken this different look at the problems that kind of face our country from a much different perspective. In the first message, our starting point, our basic idea was that if we are gonna move forward as a country, if we're gonna get over the problems that face us, if there really is a better and a brighter future ahead, it starts by doing one thing, declaring our dependence upon God. That the words that are on our money That are inscribed on our monuments, that we really have to somehow turn back, and those words have to be true again. In God we trust. That really the most important question that you face when it comes to politics is not what party you belong to, but who you invite to the party. We have to declare our dependence upon God again. And last time that we got together, we talked about a movement that was started by a young leader some 2,000 years ago, that has outlasted every other earthly kingdom and leader and nation. It's overcome persecution. It's overcome poverty. It's overcome poor leadership and countless attempts to stamp it out. And that even though we here today are citizens of one of the most powerful nations in history, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are more importantly, part of an immovable, unshakable, uncontainable, uncontrollable force called the church. It has the power to change the world and you in the process. And the church, the church which we defined as us, as you and me, not a building or a place, but as people, the church of Jesus Christ only accomplishes her mission, only fulfills her purpose. This movement is only successful when it moves. This movement only accomplishes what Christ set out for us to do when we actually do something. And tonight, as we wrap up this series, what I want us to look at is one of the biggest challenges that Christ left us, the church. Now, perhaps from your very first day of school, which for some of you is 5 or 10 or 20 years ago, for some of the rest of us, that's 40 or 50 or 60 years ago, but as long as you can remember you have been aware of a little phrase that is really one of the cornerstones of our country and it's also one of the chief pillars of our faith. Three words, justice for all. Three little words most of us probably recited every day while we were in school. The last three words in the Pledge of Allegiance, right? But three little words that carry so much weight. And it's interesting because somewhere along the line, the word justice got limited in some people's minds, so many people's minds, to really just kind of getting what you deserve in the form of a punishment. It's that Old Testament idea of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, right? I mean, you can see the scales of justice, they're even. If you commit a crime, say, like knocking somebody's eye out, well, then you suffer the same thing. Somebody gets your eye out, right? I mean, that seems fair. It's even. Justice has been served. But Jesus... The Gospels, and really all of Scripture, call us to a richer and a fuller understanding of justice. It's a justice that seeks to raise up the underprivileged. It's a justice that seeks out the poor and tries to give them what they need. It seeks out the abused, the neglected, and the forgotten. This type of justice flows from the very heart of God. And he calls us not just to seek it out, but get this to bring it about. It's not so much a justice that is served. It's a justice that serves. Scripture makes it abundantly clear. We're going to look at a few verses real quick. Listen to these verses and see if you can just kind of feel the heartbeat of God as we go through these just real quick. Deuteronomy 24, 17 says this. says, Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice. Or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. The Lord is known, the psalmist says, by his acts of justice. I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. Solomon says, the righteous care about justice for the poor. Isaiah says, learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Zechariah says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. About Jesus, Matthew writes this, and he's quoting from Isaiah. He says, here is my servant whom I've chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Finally, Jesus sheds some great light into this. He says, how will outsiders, how will the world know that you're a follower of mine? Look at what he says. And he says, it's not so much what you believe, as important as that is. He says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Can't you just, from all those verses, just feel the weight of how justice weighs upon the Father's heart? I mean, if you want to know what touches God's heart, if you want to know God's will and his plan, this is it. He calls us to look at a world that is hurting and in need, that is suffering in many ways that we could not even comprehend. And he tells us, go and do. Go and serve. Go, and in a very real sense, bring justice, my justice, to those who are without. And we don't have to look very far, right? I mean, you turn on the TV, or you open up a newspaper, or get online, and you see overwhelming need. We see stats like this. We see 163 million orphans worldwide. We see 12.3 million victims of human trafficking worldwide. This, I almost found impossible to believe, 16.7 million American children struggling with hunger. And it's a local problem. This next stat, I had to look in a few places because the first time I read it, I thought it was impossible to be true. It said as of 2010, 30.6%, more than 3 in 10, of the residents of Cincinnati live below the poverty line. Over 30%. And also went on to say there are over 8,000 homeless in greater Cincinnati. And we could read just a litany of stats, but I think you get the point. The need is great. And quite frankly, I'm not sure about you, but when I look through a list like that and I listen to a list like that, it just feels a bit overwhelming, doesn't it? I mean, there are just so many important issues. There are so many people, all created in the image of God, who are suffering injustice. And I'm not sure about you, but just speaking for myself, I get really overwhelmed by that. And the temptation for me is to hear those stats and to hear words like million and even thousands and 30% of people and just to kind of throw up my hands and say, God, there's nothing I can do about that. This problem is just too big for me. I mean, injustice that impacts millions of people around the world. I mean, come on, what am I supposed to do about that? So the temptation is to hear it and to listen and think, you know, God, this is bigger than me. You've called someone else to do this. Or maybe if it's just too strong or even a little too close to home, maybe the temptation is to say a little prayer at night that God... We'll do something about it. But here's the rub I'm a Christian. And many of you are Christians. And as we looked at those verses a few minutes ago, it's just not an option, right? I mean, but still, there is just this tension because you just know a problem that big 163 million. I mean, you can't solve that problem. You may have more time, you may have more money than me, but you can't fix it, right? I mean, the problem is just too large. So what do you do? I mean, what do you do with that tension? Now, if you're hearing this tonight, and maybe it kind of stirs up something a little in you, maybe there's a little bit of uneasiness, I'm glad because we're gonna talk about this in really practical ways here in a minute. But if you sit there and you just wish we'd talk about something happy, I get that too. And I promise you, if you hold on, by the end of this message, it will end in a good way. So what I want to do first tonight, in a little bit of time that we have left, I want to do three things. First, I want to give you a solution, a solution that I and my family have been living with for a while. And then I want to show you a passage of scripture which shows how Jesus approaches this. And then we're going to end in a kind of different, maybe exciting way. But first, maybe you can identify with this. When Lisa and I first got married, when we first got married, we didn't have lots of money. We really didn't have a lot of free time. But it was really kind of easy to see something or to hear about something, to watch something on TV or to hear somebody at church, to hear about a need and think, I've got to do something about that. There's got to be something that, that I can do. And I remember a few years into our marriage, one year doing our taxes, and Lisa is really good at keeping receipts, and we had, like, all these receipts from all these different organizations, and we'd give $50 here or $100 there, and i look at it all, and, you know, I mean, and, and I kind of did the same thing, but there were organizations that I had no idea what they did, something that kind of pierced her heart, some that kind of pierced mine, that she had no idea what they did, and I remember sitting there with this, this big bunch of receipts, and I felt like it was an absolute waste of money. Because I thought, did $100, did $50 really make a difference? Did it really do anything to combat the problem that this group or this nonprofit really tries to fight against? And isn't that really what we want to do? I mean, don't you want to know that your time and your money, that it's made a difference? Don't you want to be able to see the impact And I'm just being honest, I had a really hard time believing that $100 to a group, I couldn't even tell you what they did, really made an impact. But then, I'm not sure where I first heard this, but I learned something that I want to share with you, and it's really simple. Because I think if this isn't the answer, it's a great answer to kind of bridging this tension we feel with injustice and knowing that there's something we've got to do, but at the same time feeling that the little bit that you do offer is insignificant. Here's the answer that I learned a few years ago. It's simply this. Be the difference for one. Be the difference for one. The problems, the needs are too great. You can't make a dent in all of them, so just choose one. Be the difference for one. Choose one person or one group or one issue or need and be the difference for one. It's a biblical idea. Jesus said a day is coming when his judgment will be given. And here's what he said. Look at Matthew 25, 40. We'll put it up on the screen. Jesus said, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus says, you serve One and you serve me. You serve one. Don't get overwhelmed by the the grandness of the need, by the grandeur of the the need, but just look and just find one. Look inside and find the passion that's in your heart because God placed it there and say, that need, I'm going big, I'm going long, I'm going strong with one thing. With one. I like what Mother Teresa said. She knew a little something about serving. She said this. She said, if you can't feed 100 people, then feed just one. It's simple, isn't it? Just be the difference for one. Build a relationship, spend your money, spend your time on one. And really, this is so freeing and so rewarding because I think it helps you focus your efforts, your time, and your money on one. And when other needs come, It really makes it easier to say no to a really legitimate need because you're spending everything over here on one. It's being the difference for one. And Lisa and I, we know this from experience. Wearing this shirt tonight, we've been really involved the past few years with one. With one ministry in Mexico that focuses on the orphans, the widows, and we've just gone big with one. She's been there maybe a dozen times. I've been there about half that. We spend time and money, and it's great because you know people by name. You come back, and you see orphans by name. You see the people who work there, and you know them by name, and you keep in touch when you're gone, and their hurts and their problems become yours, and their joys and their triumphs become yours because you've gone big with one. And I know many of us in this room, I know some of your stories, you know this to be true. Because you've done the same thing. You've focused your time and your money, you've built relationships with one. For some of you, you go back year after year after year to the same place because you want to be a difference for one. And if we could get this right, if the church could get this right, it would change the country. I mean, if just Christians could get this right, listen, it would change the reputation of the church. If we could get this right, it would bring the church kind of out of the margins of society and put it front and center once again. Listen, if we can get this right, this wouldn't be extraordinary. This is just simple, basic Christian teaching. And Jesus modeled it. Because everybody wants to know, you know, are you on the, when it comes to, po- on to politics, are you on the left side or are you on the right side? And Jesus kind of comes and shows up and says, listen, hey, I'm on my own side. I didn't come to take sides. I came to take over. I don't care where you line up. The question is, what are you going to do with what I've given you? And if you answer, listen, if you answer that question correctly, the world changes. We've seen it happen. It's why in the first century, Christians who had nothing in 300 years toppled the Roman Empire, not with an army but with their generosity, through their understanding of this simple principle, be the difference for one. Now, as I was preparing for this message this week, last couple of weeks, I looked over a number of passages and I came across the passage where we're just going to kind of sit tonight for a couple of minutes. And it's a passage that I've read before numerous times. You're, fam- you're familiar with it. When the passage starts, you're going to know how, how it ends. But as I went through it again recently, I noticed something that I don't think I'd ever seen before. And as I kept reading it and kept studying it, especially in light of this principle being the difference for one, I was blown away by what I saw. And, and, I, and I think you will too. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 13. And listen, even though you may know the story, just kind of sit there and read and slowly let it unfold and watch what happens here because it's incredible. It's incredible. The context, as, as you are turning, is that Jesus is at the end of his ministry. Miracles, the teaching, is basically over. The next day, from this passage, he goes to the cross. Within hours, he will be nailed to a cross. And he gathers together this last night, this last thing he chooses to do is get together with his 12 closest friends, the disciples, and share a meal together. Walk in the room with me. You're in the room. There's Jesus, and there are the 12 disciples. And look at a few of them. Over here is Judas. Jesus looks at Judas, and Jesus knows that Judas has already began his act of betrayal. Jesus knows that. Over here, he sees Peter. Peter, who who claims really to be Jesus' biggest fan, is going to deny Jesus, and Jesus knows that. The rest of the room are filled with men who he's lived with and walked with. And in his deepest moment of need, they're going to run from Jesus. And Jesus knows that. So you've got the Savior in this room with the denier, the betrayer, and a bunch of cowards. They're all gathered together for one last meal. And Jesus knows this. Watch what takes place. John 13, we'll start in verse 2. It says this. It says the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. It was already in motion. Now, watch this. It says, Jesus knew. Here's what this really means. Jesus didn't learn something here. But there's just a something about this moment, as you kind of read what's taking place, there's something about the moment where certain things just kind of rush to the forefront. Jesus becomes acutely aware of the fact that he's in a room in this, this time, this place, with this group of men whom he's lived with. who They've done incredible things together. They've witnessed miracles. He's in this room, and suddenly he becomes acutely aware of what they're going to do, and who he is. Watch what happens. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Here's the idea. Let's kind of try to take it out of there and put it into our world. You walk into a room to have dinner with some of your closest friends. You look around the room. You care for these people. You, you love these people. You've invested your life in these people. You pray for them. You think about them. You make sacrifices for them. You're in this room for them. And being there, you realize that one of your closest friends it becomes known to you, has sold you out to the authorities to such an extent that you're going to be executed tomorrow. And then the one who seems to be your biggest fan in your deepest moment of need is going to deny even knowing you. And the rest of the room, the rest of your friends are going to run when you need them most. And then it dawns on you that God has given you, has given you complete and total power. What would you do? God somehow has given you all authority and power and God's like, hey, this guy's going to betray you, that guy's going to deny you, and all the rest are going to run it's up to you. Go with it. Whatever you want to do, what would you do? It's going to blow your mind. Here's what Jesus does. John thirteen four says this. Says, it begins by saying, so. This is a beautiful word. It is the hinge of this passage. So. Meaning, with all that in mind, knowing that your friends have forsaken you, that you're going to die a horrific death, knowing that you've got the power to change it, knowing that you can stop it, that you can do something about it with all that in mind. So Jesus got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured some water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. In that moment, When the betrayer and the denier and the cowards were in the room, in that moment where it dawns on Jesus that he has the power to change this, in that moment, don't miss this, Jesus decides the best thing to do is to just keep on doing what he's been doing all along and he serves them. I gotta be honest that response wouldn't even cross my mind. I mean, come on, I got a chance? We've all been there. You get a chance, you're in this moment, you've had these imaginary conversations in your head, boy, if, if, if I just got a chance, what I would say? If I just got a chance, what I would do, right? Surely I'm not alone in that, right? I mean, you thought, if in this moment, and then you have power to actually do something about it, I mean, let me tell you, serving is not even going to cross my mind. Serving them up, maybe, it might be what I do. But serving them? No way. Jesus, in this moment, with all this in mind, serves them. Skip down a few verses, and look how Jesus defines the moment. We'll skip down to verse 12. 12 to 15, in the middle of 12. Jesus says, do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. People today want to minimize Jesus as just a good teacher, saying he never claimed to be God. Sure he did. This is just one of many examples. Jesus claimed complete divinity. And anything less than a completely divine Jesus is not Jesus. Here's what happens next. Jesus says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. For I have set you, if you have a pen, you have your Bible, circle this word, an example that you should do as I have done for you. Do you see what he did for him? He gathered together with the betrayers and the deniers and the cowards, and he served them. And then he wasn't done, because just a few hours later, He went to the cross and died for the deniers and the betrayers and the cowards. But in this moment, I mean, one of the last moments before the cross, what's, what's your key teaching, Jesus? What do you want us to know? It's kind of your last chance. What do you want to teach us? In this moment, he taught his disciples And he taught us. I mean, imagine what the disciples thought weeks and months and years later. They looked back knowing how everything would play out and and they talked amongst themselves. I'm sure they did. Can you believe that in that moment, he didn't call us out? Can you believe in that moment, he didn't try to rise us up to higher faith? Instead, in that moment, he said, I'm going to serve you. He's teaching us there's nobody too great to serve. There's no offense you've suffered that keeps you from serving, Jesus says, I've set you an example. So tonight, I was trying to think, as we wrap up this series, and as we wrap up this message, it just didn't seem right here at the end to throw in a good illustration or maybe a heartwarming story and then pray. That just didn't seem right. I mean, I don't think you can teach about serving or learn about serving without serving, right? I mean, you can't walk out of, out of here tonight and thought, wow, that, that passage of, of, of Scripture is just so rich, and I've just really got something to think about. I mean, that's not the point, right? I mean, we have to live out that principle, be the difference for one. So tonight we're going to end this by doing something a little or maybe a lot different. In just a minute, I'd like to, the guys who are going to pass these things out, in just a minute, you are going to get an envelope. And in this envelope, as you open, as you open it up, you're going to notice, and listen, if this is your first time at Living Church, you have picked the right night to come. Trust me, when you get these envelopes. I mean, you constantly hear us here at, at this church. If you've been coming for a while, I mean, we constantly, so many of us say three simple kind of sayings. We say, know Christ, live Christ, and make him known. So tonight, we are going to intentionally do that. In fact, we're going to try to give you your own kind of stimulus to get this done. So as they're passing out the envelopes, you guys can go ahead and do that. We're good. As you get the envelope, just go ahead and open it up inside, and basically you're going to find two things inside. One, you're going to find just a Living Church card. It's got information about Living Church because once you follow up and do what we're going to talk about, we want you to share what happened. But also in the envelope, you're gonna find the picture of maybe a dead president, somebody else. You're gonna find money in your envelope. And here's what we want you to do as an individual, or as a group, or maybe as a family, we want you to take this money, the church's money. We want you to take it. You can add to it if you want, it doesn't matter. But go and be the difference for one. You can't mess this up. Okay? I don't know what this looks like for you. I mean, maybe you know someone who's going through a really tough time. And you think, you know, I'd just love to buy them groceries for a week. Buy them groceries for whatever, whatever it is. Go and do that. Maybe you know a family who's got a little kid who needs a coat for the winter. Go do that. Maybe you just think, you know, I know one person. If I could just take them out to dinner, they'd, they'd love it. We could just sit there. They could open up their heart. We could just talk and just, just go do that. Maybe somebody needs a Thanksgiving meal. Listen, you can't mess this. I mean, you can't get this wrong. Whatever it is, just go and be the difference for one. Think about it. Pray about it. But do it. Maybe this is going to open some doors who knows how God's going to use this, but I'm certain he's going to do it. The second thing, again, that living church card, all we ask you to do is after you do it, by yourself, with a group, your family, whatever, after you do it, just Facebook us, email us back, and just tell us what happened. There's nothing too small. Taking somebody out for coffee is not too small. Whatever it is, let us know how God works, what doors God is going to open. You, Be the difference for one. Listen, we serve a giant God and the way he usually meets our needs is not through him doing a miracle. The way it usually happens is by you walking across the room and being the miracle for someone else. Again and again and again, Christ tells us, Paul tells us, help one another, carry one another's burdens. That's how God does it. He does it through us. Last verse. I'm going to leave you with a promise. In 2 Corinthians 9, 13 and 15, Paul says this. Paul says, because of the service by which you've proved yourselves, here's what will happen. Others will praise God. You want to share the gospel? Then go and serve. You want to share Jesus? Then go and do. Others will praise God. And Paul puts it all in context. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's pray. Father, you have given us an indescribable gift in Jesus Christ. God, it's not just Peter and Judas and a bunch of disciples sitting in a room. It's us. He saw us. Knowing our betrayal, our denial, our cowardice, our fear, whatever it might be, our sin, and he served us. He got upon a cross and died and served us. And Jesus, you've told us that you've set us an example. Help us to open our hearts to be the difference for one, to follow your example. God, you're good. Your mercies are new every morning. Give us courage. Give us strength. Open our eyes to that one we can be the difference for. Let us be your hands and your feet. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.